0: Well, thank you, Nate and band, and thank you for being here this morning. It is always a joy to welcome you here to church. If you're a pod listener online, we welcome you as well. And, uh, of course, always here in our building, it's so good to see your smiling face every week. Um, you guys are doing a great job. And we have been diligently at this vision and mission of, of developing a biblical worldview church. And because of you and your traction in that area with the weekends and then the uh, Uh, the opportunity through answers in genesis and other uh, learning and growth opportunities um, that is catching hold and gaining traction and it's really having an impact and one of the reasons why i'm so excited about lifewise academy is that um, when i was reading through some of the um, material and the content of that curriculum and just seeing what it invests in the lives of young people and children it's really impressive in fact they use the phrase biblical worldview or a worldview. And it's the worldview behind the character development that they try to instill within the kids. And so not only are we a biblical worldview church, but we're endeavoring now to live out that value and that mission such that, that even during a school day, um, with parents' permission and everything set up right, we can have children who are learning a biblical worldview during a, a normal public school day. And that is just a phenomenal opportunity. And so thank you for just praying for that and supporting that and i'm encouraged it, it gives me great courage and energy to continue to pursue what god is calling us to pursue um, and i hear stories from time to time of how god is at work even in our body um, we like i said so many different aspects and angles and and th- that we're bringing to this and opportunities to learn and grow with this and to develop our worldview such that we can do life better make better decisions be in a position of just god's thriving and flourishing in our life and can live for him and be all that we were intended to be Uh, ben mead was telling me here a few weeks ago maybe a few months ago now him and luke were in a museum in st louis i think it was a sports weekend and luke and and his friend and ben went to a dinosaur museum and of course you know that luke has done the aig stuff and he's been to these biblical worldview weekends and he's learned a lot of neat things even at an early age he's like primary age and he's taking it all in and as he was going through this museum with the fourth grade buddy he was looking at things in the exhibit and luke was just checking it out and reading the reading what he could read about those exhibits and he was like wrong 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 he was just right down the line he's like man these people where where are they at in their educational plan in this place and the fourth grader looked at him and was like what am i missing what does this guy know that i don't know and it's that's what i'm saying God is working in this body, and that encourages me. A life is being changed. Lives are being changed. Worldviews are, are shifting such that we have the best explanation of all of reality. And I'll say that, and I'll keep saying that to the rest of my ministry here. Christianity, the biblical worldview, has the best explanation of all of reality. You look at all the data, and the biblical worldview will explain it the best. And you'll understand that, I think, as we just keep walking through this and making this journey. So we are in the book of Ecclesiastes, and today we're in Ecclesiastes 6. And I have noticed and I have sensed that uh, throughout this series in Ecclesiastes, there's something been building in this series. I could tell just from the way Solomon is stating things, uh, the way he phrases things. In fact, we'll look at some key phrases today today. Um, what he talks about, what he wants to talk about, what he regrets, um, what he'd like to have a do-over in, a shift of priorities and things. You kind of see this thing developing in the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and today, it kind of comes to a head, and I think that Solomon is textbook midlife crises, okay, textbook. And when you look at all the, the, the hints that he gives at it and the phrases that he used to describe things going on in his life... And so it's not just midlife crisis, though. Uh, I think that when we look at Ecclesiastes 6, that we have insight on how not just to navigate those, uh, those uh, experiences of life, but also any crises. Uh, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be midlife crises. It's any crises of life. And so today, I think it's an incredible opportunity for me and for us to learn together as we look at uh, turning a crisis into a fresh start. Why does it have to be a midlife crisis? Why can't it be a midlife opportunity? Why can't it be a midlife awakening? Why can't it be a midlife open door? Such that we can uh, learn some things, evaluate where we are, and, and reset um, and recalibrate the, the direction of where we're headed. And so uh, we wanna, I want to talk to you about turning a crisis into a fresh start and we have to look at a few questions related to that, like what does a crisis look and feel like? Um, what does a crisis sound like? All right, we're going to see that. What, what changes a crisis into an opportunity? And, and so on. And so Ecclesiastes 6 is kind of where all of that comes to a head. And so I want to say to you this morning that a crisis is coming to you. It will come to you, and it will come to you probably at one of the most inopportune times in your life. And when the, and the crisis comes to you, it, your marriage might blow up, uh, your adult kids might stop listening to you, maybe your at-home kids might stop listening to you as well. I know that was a big thing for me. When, when my kids turned 24, they stopped listening to me for whatever reason. So watch out for 24. Now, they're good kids. They've made a lot of great decisions, but they just figured at 24 they're ready to fly this thing on their own, okay? So, But don't let that throw you. For me, it threw me for a little bit, but I had to understand the the life stage they're in, okay? But it may be a financial future that's uncertain. Uh, Maybe you don't look like you used to look. Maybe you lose your parents, and all of a sudden you think about your mortality more than you've ever thought about it before, all right? And Don Anderson, who has written a commentary, a book on Ecclesiastes, in fact, he argues throughout the whole book, his commentary, that that Solomon was wrestling with midlife crises. And he summarizes the unlucky 13, he calls it, quote, unquote, the unlucky 13. And he says, when you've got the unlucky 13 kind of uh, dynamic at, at play in your life, that chances are you're in a crisis of some sort. Number one, the recognition and approach of old age and an increasing desire to avoid it. When you start feeling that, it may be a crisis is looming. Uh, number two, a sense of boredom after 20, 25 years of marriage. You see this all the time. Marriages blow up. They go, a couple's go different directions. And a lot of times it's not even really about the relationship. It's other things in play in life. Uh, number three is a severe a severe feeling of sadness and loss, uh, especially over the fact that children are grown and they're gone. Maybe they don't listen to you anymore, all right, like they've always listened to you before, but now they don't because they're older, and that's a crisis for you. Maybe a decline in physical health. Uh, maybe there's job security that's threatened. AI is becoming a real deal i got to do more reading in that, but it's going to impact the job markets and force workforce going forward, and maybe there's some of that in. Maybe there's uh, to factor in, or younger workers come in and do your job. Uh, maybe there's a, a sense of perceived failure, unrealized personal, professional goals. I wanted to do this. The time is running out. I don't think I'm going to be able to do this, and so you have to come to terms with that. Uh, there's success, where... Uh, Maybe it's not all cracked up to be what you thought it might be. You had this mental map of what you wanted to accomplish in life. You had the X. The X marks the spot. I get the X well, on my life map. I get there, and, buddy, this is the way life's going to be for me. And then you get there, and you find the X, and instead of finding the treasure chest, it's a big, great, big void. And it's like, oh, no. I gave everything for this. And this thing is this, this treasure chest doesn't have what I thought it would have in it. Might be some of that. Maybe there's a consuming thirst to get rich. That that afflicts a lot of people. Uh, perceived need for new challenges, experiences. Uh, ten, a desire to search for real meaning and purpose, coupled with the futi- uh, feeling of futility concerning your present activities. Maybe there's weariness regarding hassles and responsibilities. Anderson says, a, a fierce longing to escape gnawing problems and just start over somewhere, make a new beginning. 13, he says, the absence of an intense desire to walk with God and to know him more intimately. What does a crisis look and feel like? That's what it looks and feels like. As far as identifying what, it, what is this thing, we call a crisis, a midlife crisis, any other life crisis. Well, what does, a, what does a crisis sound like? Well, it's interesting because I think Solomon gives us insight there. Uh, We've got 12 verses in front of us in Ecclesiastes 6 this morning, but I want us to go to slide number 2 just at the get-go here because it's going to give us some insight. There's three nouns I think they're important for us to recognize. Three nouns, and then there's three phrases that will help us understand what a crisis Looks and feels like and what a crisis sounds like. And so you got three nouns in slide number two. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor. There's your three nouns. So that they lack nothing, their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. On the screen. This is meaningless and a grievous evil and so solomon's not going to ding you for being a millionaire or billionaire or trillionaire like he was he's not going to ding you for that what he's going to ding you for is that you haven't enjoyed what god's already given you and you don't have that ability that's a gift from god you see and so it's important for us to recognize that and solomon wealth possessions and honor wealth is riches okay gold silver flocks herds houses And secondly, possessions is basically all those things in abundance. And thirdly is honor, the Hebrew word is kavod, it means to be heavy, to be weighty with fame or splendor or honor or respect. And so Solomon had wealth, possessions and honor, um, all of these things. In fact, we know that Solomon is making a cameo appearance in Ecclesiastes six. He's photoshopping himself into the story here in his in his journal. We call Ecclesiastes. It's like uh, it's like the guy that did, did all the Marvel movies. Uh, well, I don't forget his name, but he would he would make these cameo appearances. It might be like a fan in the stands of a game, or it might be somebody walking by him on the street. He never he had a, never had a major role in the stories or movies, but he would, he would write himself in just for fun. Uh, St- I, I forget his name, but anyway. Stan Lee. Thank you. Stan Lee. Yes, appreciate that. Bonus points, okay? Stan Lee would write himself in to make these cameo appearances, all right? And, and it was kind of effective, kind of fun people to watch for it. Well, here's the deal. Solomon is making a cameo appearance right here in especially chapter six of Ecclesiastes, but it's his journal all through the journal. He's trying to show you something of himself. And how do I know he's doing that? Well, I'm gonna tell you the only other place you find these three nouns together in this order is here and one other place in the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles chapter one, verses 11 through 12. Slide number eight, if you would, pull it up for me. Solomon is ready to... Uh, start his rule and reign. God said, Solomon, what what, what do you want me to do for you? Since this is your heart's desire and you have not asked for wealth, possessions, or honor. Okay, Solomon said, God, just give me wisdom and understanding. I don't care about all the other stuff. I just want to know how to go out and to come in and rule this people with a positive mindset and wisdom and understanding so I can be a good leader for them and the nation can get a win, all right? God says, since this is your heart's desire, you have not asked for wealth, possessions, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies. And since you have not asked for long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king, therefore wisdom and knowledge will be given to you. I will also give you wealth, possessions, and honor, such as no king who is before me, before you ever had, and none after you will have wealth. Possessions and honor, the only two places where you see those three nouns stacked up in that order. Solomon says, I'm writing myself into the story here. It's not just some theoretical dude he's writing about. It's my story in Ecclesiastes 6. Do you see that? So he's a cameo appearance right here in Ecclesiastes 6. Wealth, possessions, and honor, we know what that phrase refers to. That's Solomon's story. Okay, it identifies him with the phrasing, the three nouns. All right, we got three phrases now. Okay, what does a crisis look and feel like? Well, we've talked about that. And then what does a crisis sound like? It sounds like the phrases that Solomon uses. Uh, The preacher King Solomon makes use of three memorable phrases to describe his conclusions from his search for meaning and purpose in life. And he uses these phrases throughout his journal. So we see under the sun, if you would go to slide number two for me, slide number two in red, you're going to see the phrase under the sun. Go to slide number six for me, if you would, slide six, verse 12, you're going to see the phrase under the sun. Now it's interesting because that phrase is used throughout the journal, but he uses it twice here in chapter six. Another second phrase that appears many times, it occurs Um, 25 times is the phrase or the word meaningless. Some translations have vanity. If you would, go to slide number two for me. Slide number two on the screen, verse verse two, you're going to see meaningless. Go to slide number five for me. This is verse nine. You're going to see the word meaningless 25 times. Okay, we see this. And then there's another word or phrase that shows up nine occurrences of this third phrase a chasing after the wind if you would go to slide five for me verse nine verse nine again a chasing a grasping for the wind or a chasing after the wind and so another phrase in fact I don't have here but he uses several times he says he'll say the phrase I said in my heart he'll say that phrase several times and maybe you've noticed that as we've gone through his journal But all three phrases occur in this section. So Solomon is just hammering away. He hammers and he hammers and he hammers these phrases. He just will not give it up. I mean, come on, Solomon. Give us something different to think about. He won't do it. Life under the sun with a limited God, less God perspective, without God in it, it goes like this. Life feels meaningless. Uh, It's a chasing after the wind. And and these are are buzzwords words or phrases of a man in crises this is what a men life crisis or any other life crisis for that matter this is what it sounds like it's meaningless in fact Solomon's even going to reference a stillborn birth here in his in his journal you ever heard somebody say well I wish I'd never been born or, I wish I was stillborn this is how life my how bad my life is you ever heard somebody say that I have. This is a man in crises, and we have to understand that and acknowledge that. Well, what brought him to this place of crises? And that is the third question, what changes a crisis into an opportunity? And he he has had an extraordinary insight into his life, into what he's lived for, into what he prioritized, he's lived his life now, and he's looking back, Um, one writer, Paul Tripp, says that when we're younger, we're astronauts, and we're looking up and out, and when we turn to middle age, we turn into archaeologists, and we get the spade, and we start digging around the mounds of our past, okay, and that's a great word picture because that's what Solomon does. He starts, he gets that spade and he's an archaeologist now. He's going to dig into his life and try to understand why life has gone the way it is. He lived for what he thought would be the treasure. That, I mean, his life map was laid out. He had the X marked. He got to the X and he opened that treasure. And he said, okay, and this is it. That's where he was. And it brought him to midlife crises a major life crisis. Uh, Perhaps uh, slide number 11, if you would, for me. Slide number 11, the author of the book Catch-22. It's a big, it's a popular novel. I've not read it, not really interested in reading it, but I'm interested in the author and a story that happened in his life. Joseph Heller was once invited, author of this book, I think he's deceased now, but he was once invited to a billionaire's home and the host for the day that was going to host him in this billionaire's home, he says, do you know, uh, Mr. Heller, that this billionaire earns in one day more than you will ever earn in a lifetime selling your book, Catch-22? What does that do to you, Joseph? And the host thought that he'd do and awe over that and even be envious and jealous. And Joseph Heller said, you know, he says, I don't feel any of that. And the host quickly replied, well, why not? I mean, you know, it's a, one day this guy makes more than you're going to make on that book in a lifetime. Why don't you feel envious of that or jealous of that? And Joseph Heller says, because I have something that the billionaire doesn't have. Well, what is it? Joseph said, I have enough. I have enough. You see i have all that god has given me and what he's given me i'm not i'm not uh caught up in this this uh you know perspective or view of entitlement that says to myself if god gives me this then i'll be happy no no contentment says because god has given me this already i will enjoy life so solomon is not going to ding you for being a millionaire billionaire trillionaire he's going to ding you for not enjoying what god has already given and not having the ability to enjoy what God has already given. How about you this morning? Do you have enough? And see Solomon was always pursuing wealth, possessions and honor. Even though his life started out differently. And he was in a man on a mission wanting to honor and glorify God. He got away from that. And the gifts from God of wealth... Possessions and honor, the gifts from God turned into into the preoccupation of his life, and no longer now did he just want to walk before God humbly, enjoying the simple things of life. Instead, he gets caught up in this pursuit of wealth and, and possessions and honor, and he couldn't get enough of it. And he's trying to tell you in so many ways. It's meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. It's it's life under the sun. How many more phrases do I need to sprinkle throughout my journal until you Americans in 2023 can get this? All of us. He's trying to convey to us that there is a beauty in those simple things, provisions of God in life, and there is a beauty about being at the place in your life where you can say, I have enough. I have enough. Well, Solomon got to that place because he, he got everything he thought he wanted. And yet, he realized it wasn't adequate. It wasn't enough. You know, Stephen Davey tells a story that's kind of interesting it's an annual bicycle race in India, I believe. A small town in India has this annual bicycle race, and you line up, you know, and everybody's excited, and you got their, the, the contestants there on their bicycles, and you have their friends and family, and they're just getting fired up about this race, so pumped up, and, and, but this is a unique race because the rules aren't what you think they would be because the winner of this race is not the one that goes the furthest the fastest the winner is the one who can balance his bike without his feet touching the ground and to see how short of a distance he can go without losing his balance and having to put his feet down that's who wins this bicycle race and so when the gun goes off everybody uh, you know, they're cheering, their crowd's going crazy, and you're sitting there trying to just go like a half inch, an inch, an inch, an inch, an inch, an inch and then in so many minutes, they fire the sound, the, the gun again, and then whoever has gone the shortest distance wins the race, and they go crazy. Kind of a, my kind of race, right? Your kind of race, all right? That's fun. But well, what if we never understood the rules of the race? Right? Here we come in from America in a little Indian town in India, and boy, boy, we get on that bike, and that gun goes off, and what do we do? You know, we're ready. You know, we got our bike, and here we go. As fast as we can go. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Right? And we ride that thing, and we, after several minutes, we kind of look around, and nobody's around us. Like Man, I must be doing good. I'm smoking the field. This is awesome. Right, And we're just riding and we're pedaling. And this is like, man, this is good. I could get used to this. I'm finally going to win this thing. I'm going to break the tape. I am ahead of everybody. I love this Indian race that I've never heard about until today. I love this race and I'm going to win this thing. This is great. And then he hears the gun go off. Just in the distance because he's gone so far this is weird. There's nobody here. What's up? And he realizes, uh uh-oh, I didn't have the right rules of the race. I was running another race. And see, I think that's what's happened with Solomon. Wealth, possessions, honor. He gave himself to that He got on that bike, and if we stay with the analogy, he had the most aerodynamically shaped helmet. He had little gold plating on his really professional, high-tech, lightweight bicycle. He had the best shoes you could ride in, the best technical garments you could ride in. Okay, he was set up. He had everything in that direction, and he's riding, and he's riding, and he's riding, and riding, and 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 the gun goes off. Boom. And he realizes, you know what? It wasn't about going further than everybody. It wasn't about getting more gold than everybody. It wasn't getting about, about getting more houses and lands for, than everybody else. It was about learning to balance the unpredictable things of life in the moment. Learning to balance it and finding joy in it. You see, that will send you into crises. When one has lived their entire lives according to a different set of rules that they thought was going to get them to the treasure chest of satisfaction, and they realize, oh my goodness, the gun has just gone off. I live my life according to these rules, and yeah, man, nobody could touch me. I'm out there in a league of my own, but I... I, I've, run, I've run the wrong race, you see. And that's where Solomon is. Slide number two, if you would, for me. Sol, uh, Solomon says it this way. He says, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. And so what he's going to say to you is that what he's going to tell you in this cameo performance He is going to tell you a heartbreaking scenario that happened. That pistol, that starter pistol went off, he's saying, and I lived, I ran that race, I pedaled that race according to a set of rules that I didn't know the the, the true set of rules I should have been running that race by. And he says, God gives some, verse 2, God gives some, not everyone's experience, but some, wealth, possessions, and honor. There's that phrase so that they lack nothing their heart's desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. It's a terrible sickness. I mean, I get the picture. He has stomach ulcers over the worry and the fret and the disappointment that he's experienced in life. And what's really interesting in verse 2 in um, the latter part of verse 2, God does not give him power to enjoy them, right? He, has, he doesn't have the ability to enjoy what God has given to him. And so uh, this is vanity, Solomon says. He has hundreds of beautiful wives, but no sex drive. He's got a five-star meal in front of him uh, three times a day, but he has no appetite. He's got 35 bedrooms to choose from, but he can't sleep. He's got chariots and caravans ready to take him around the world in a moment's notice, but he he has no health to be able to travel. It's having thousands of books and and very poor eyesight. It's having dozens of children but no love on Father's Day. And and that's literally true. You're going to see it in in a couple of verses. He's in crises. The trillionaire lacks one thing. Enough. He lacks one thing. He's got everything else except enough. He can't get to the extraction of life in the moment. He had all of these gifts, but not the power from God to enjoy them. And instead, in verse 2, he says a stranger. uh, The NIV smooths it out. The literal rendering would be a foreigner ate them. A foreigner ate them, or a stranger ate them came in and enjoyed them instead of me, right? Maybe there's natural disaster. I think he's using it figuratively here. I think it's a a natural disaster maybe or a catastrophe. Maybe there's a lawsuit he's involved with. Uh, Maybe there's something that happens in life that renders, renders him in a period of hopelessness in his life. So a sickness, a domestic problem. Maybe there's natural calamity. Maybe it's a literal thief. Maybe it's all of these things. And you can't outpedal them. You can only balance through that. And Solomon, by talking about his disappointments, is try, he's trying to create a longing in you, a longing in me in my heart, that I'll reach out for God. Instead of the ex of what I think the treasure should be, I'll instead, he, he talks openly about his struggles so that you and I would see it and would reach out for God in longing, in hope. God, I want you to be my ex, okay? Not my ex-spouse, okay? My ex on on the, on the map of life, okay? I want you to be my ex. I want you to be my treasure. I want you to be these things because I know these other things have failed. Listen, verse three, slide three, hastening on here. say, Okay, so a man may have a hundred children. So implied in this, read it carefully. If you have a hundred children, there's an awful lot of love making going on. So he's got a lot of that going on in his life. He's got a hundred children. I don't know who in the right mind would do this. Children are awesome, but a hundred of them, okay? You would have to be a trillionaire to take care of the diaper bill for sure, okay? A man may have a hundred children. That's how you get children: is to make love to a a wife. Remember, he's got seven hundred of them. So I think Solomon probably had a hundred or more children. A man may live many years, so he's got he's got. Uh, Longevity, he's got posterity in children, he's got longevity. A man may live many years, and obviously there's a measure of health because you don't live many years without health. And so what we got to realize is that Solomon is even taking on the major status symbols of ancient Near Eastern culture when he says if you have long life and a lot of children, then you're really, really blessed. And there is no possible way that you'll not be happy and satisfied in life if you've got those status symbols. From the ancient Near Eastern world. Your family is big. Your life is long. How could you not be happy? I mean, you're, you're quite the stud. You fathered all these children, a large family, a long life, typically signs of God's favor. But look what he says. No matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial. It's vanity. It's meaningless. Here's a man, listen to me. Here's a man with abundant resources, a large family, but note carefully, read it carefully on the screen. Maybe your Bible in front of you. When he died, he was not lamented. His family doesn't love him. What a tragedy. Most ancient peoples believe that a proper timely burial affected the quality of the afterlife. So they're not even sending grandpa or great-grandpa off into a wonderful afterlife. They could care less about him. A hundred kids and not one of them made sure dad got sent off in honor and style. Could it be, as Judd Wilhite suggests, that he was so focused on producing a child number 100, he ignored children 1 through 99? Wealth, possessions, honor. Boy, he's really after it. He's going, he's going, he's pumping the pedals. Man, I'm making progress. Nobody can touch Solomon. Nobody can touch Solomon. Nobody in slow motion. I see it in the movie. Nobody. I misunderstood the rules of the game. You see that? Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, and he makes this just incredible statement, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Wow. It's Solomon's way of saying, maybe it's better if I've never been born. He's contrasting a baby who is stillborn with the death of a man who has 100 children, and he concludes that a stillborn baby is better off than the man who has lived a long life. Why would he do that? I mean, this is a sensitive topic, Solomon. Why would you make this comparison? Well, in the self-portrait, I think he's kind of he's kind of... Having an experience like Job had, slide number nine, if you would for me, Job 3.16, got, Job declares that he'd prefer to be stillborn rather than to be in the present state of misery that he was in. That's how bad things had become for Job, and life had become so painful. He spent the time out outpedaling everybody else, and he realizes, wait a second, that's not what the goal of life is that maybe I should balance the daily and the unexpected in such a way that I enjoy my family and I honor God and I invest in the people that matter to me in my life instead of always the next acquisition. You know, at first, I, I didn't like Solomon making the comparison. I have done a funeral for a stillborn baby, and a couple of them. And uh, the moms, it's just incredible what they go through and what families go through. And... Uh, one mom told me it was like a flower fading like their baby was born just like a brand new fresh flower and then as the minutes ticked by the flower just faded and i know how emotionally charged this can be and it's like i was kind of working through this in my head why solomon would do this but i think i know why because the stillborn is so loved after only a few seconds Here's a man who has lived an entire lifetime, and when he dies, no one grieves. So in the privacy of his home, he's surrounded by his children. He's got good gifts, but no one really cares about them. And the implication is that he has no genuine interest in loving or disciplining or, or leading his family. He has this huge family. He's got status symbols galore according to the ancient Near Eastern worldview. He's got huge status symbols. I mean, God obviously is smiling on his life, right? Look at his possessions. Look at the size of his family. Look at the number of his years. And yet, it's all a facade. He's surrounded by children, and experiences the greatest dishonor imaginable by them. He's not even given a proper burial in the family cemetery plot. He's been revered by his peers, envied by many, leading that bicycle race of life. And on the outside for decades, it looked like he was winning the race. And if the rules of the race were having children, a big family, huge reunions, birthday parties, and smashes every weekend, this man was so far ahead of everybody else, nobody could catch him. But he recognized, uh-oh, I've misunderstood the rules of the race. Well, somebody, I, I just thought of this, preparing this message here this, for last really all week but then just kind of pulling it trying to pull it all together would somebody google real quick um harry chapin cats in the cradle song for me harry chapin cats in the cradle just google it pull the lyrics of that and i i want you to come up here in just a second i want you to read the lyrics to that song okay somebody do it i i don't know Whoever feels like doing that, audience participation this morning, because you're going to be my conclusion just a little bit. Because that's what Solomon was missing. He never understood Harry Chapin, and Cats in a Cradle. And his life's almost over. And now he's in crises. He doesn't know what to do. In fact, he talks about the stillborn baby for just a little bit. You know, he says, it or the the stillborn baby comes without meaning there's no explanations given about the stillbirth the baby departs in darkness there's no social significance the babe and in darkness its name is shrouded so there's no name assigned I guess they figured that if you didn't name the baby you could get over the grief faster I say malarkey if you have a stillborn baby give that baby a name you need to name your baby I don't care what they did in ancient near eastern world you name your baby baby was important and special, and you, it's part of the grieving process. When Solomon's time, in darkness, its name is shrouded. They didn't really bother to name the baby. They thought maybe they could just get over the grief faster. They didn't give it a name. Though it never saw the sun or knew not anything, it has more rest than does that man. Slide four. Even if he lives thousands of years, twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. You could just live a 1,000 years times two, so 2,000 years. And if you're going to live according to the wrong set of rules, it will not matter. It'll all be worthless in the end if you haven't turned and looked to God for definition and purpose and meaning. If you haven't honored him with your life, You can pedal faster and farther. You can live longer. You can have more kids in your family than anybody else. But if you haven't balanced life right in a way that honors and glorifies God, it's a very empty finish line. Well, we're going to hasten on. Verse 7, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. The word appetite. soul. Their soul is never satisfied. They're chasing a carrot on a stick. They're chasing after things we desire, which are constantly just out of reach, and they spend their life chasing the carrot on the stick. What advantage, verse 8, slide 4, have the wise over the fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Okay, Solomon is illustrating with people on both ends of the spectrum. If you're smart and you have it all together, if you're a poor, uneducated person, and these are the extremes that he, that he um, lays out for us. It doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you're on. If you, if you never know when to say, I have enough. You're destined for a life or a crisis that's going to hit you. And you're not going to be prepared for it because you've been operating against another set of rules, life rules. Verse 9, let's just finish it up quickly here. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. Okay, that's his way of saying just what God has given you already, the gifts he's given you. Really see it for what it is. Take it in. And if you don't, it's meaningless. A chasing after the wind. He says... Verse 10 Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. All right, so when you name something, you have authority over it. God has named things in our life, He has authority over all the things that's going on in our, in our life. He has authority, and there's no need to argue or try to out, out, out argue God. Verse 10, verse 11 The more the words. The less meaning and how does that profit anyone? We can make feeble excuses for chasing the carrots. We can make feeble excuses for pedaling that bike faster in the rules of the race that we have set up for ourselves. He says it doesn't matter. Verse 12 says, For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow. Life is so short. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? You know, when I was reading through this and trying to work through the, the issues of crises and how we can turn a crisis into a fresh start, I went to Elizabeth Brown, Elizabeth Brown book, uh, slide number 12, if you would, for me. She has a book she's written, Standing Up When Life Falls Down Around You, and maybe that's you this morning. You've had moments where life is just falling down around you Maybe the love of your life walks out, your child dies. Maybe you have a stillborn uh, birth in your family. Maybe you're fired from a job. Maybe a friend or a spouse puts someone else a- ahead of you or, or you're diagnosed with a disease. Any of these things, she says. And she says, I went through a te- experience in my life where I was like that. Everything was falling down around me. And I had to learn how to recover and recalibrate in order to survive it. And um, she says... Uh, I had to have courage to face it. I had to have determination to trust God in the middle of it. I had to make some intentional choices. How did she get there? Well, her daughter Leanne died from viral encephalitis one week before her, her seventh birthday. And so that was devastating. And then not too long after that, her daughter Kim, who had four children, Kim ended up dying on Elizabeth's birthday, her actual birthday, the author of the book's birthday. And so she, she knew, she said, I had to do something. She said, I rummaged and bumbled my way through grief for six years. It took me two years not to cry every day. And it took me six years before my memories with my girls could even bring laughter again. It was a six-year process. It was, it was a crisis. She was in crises for six years. She says it could have consumed her for a lifetime, though, and she had to make some decisions. When I thought about what she said in her book and I thought about what Solomon says here in Ecclesiastes 6, I thought, oh, my goodness, there's some guidelines and some lifelines and some anchors and some insights that will help all of us turn a crisis into a a fresh start. Here's what you got to do. We see it here, it's kind of embedded, because Solomon rummages and bumbles his way through this, and he does it in awkward ways and phrases in his book. But if you're going to make it through the crises, if you're going to turn a crisis into a fresh start, you've got to acknowledge the crises. Verse 1, if you would for me, quickly. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavenly on mankind. You will never get past the crises unless you acknowledge the crises. Yes, I'm in crises. We can't ignore the mess. Life gets messy, and we can't ignore the mess. Secondly, a lot of times we think, well, it's a mess. I'll just make it messier. I'll just go do some crazy things. I'll hire plastic surgeons. I'll quit my job. I'll sell my home. I'll, I'll go to a different place in the world, and I'll just do something different and radical and, and, and uh, a contrast maybe to what I, I've lived and how I've lived prior to this point in my life. I'll just go do something and make it messier. Think before making big changes. What, what's he say in verse 12? For who knows what is good for a person in life. During the few and meaningless days they pass through life like a shadow. All right. Everybody will tell you. Elizabeth Brown will tell you don't do something crazy. Think before you make big changes. When you're in a crisis, don't make it messier. If you want to make it turn a crisis into something good a fresh start you start by asking yourself some questions look at verse 12 again who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone right what does your life mean what is it about and you think about those questions if I continue my current life path, if I continue pedaling this bike the way I've been pedaling it and the direction I've been pedaling according to the rules I've established for myself, where is it going to put me in 20 years? How am I making sure that I'm continually learning and growing? And, and do I know my guiding purpose in life? And, and am I living my life in line with this purpose? Is there something unfinished God's got for me to do? Solomon asked several questions in this chapter I think it's an indicator that we all need to do the same. Be grateful for what you have. That's verse 9. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. Always chasing the carrot. Instead of expressing gratitude and having the ability to enjoy what God's already given. Everyone of all ages does life crises at different points in their life. Solomon says... Even if he lives a thousand years, twice over. Okay, so forget numbers. Forget how old you are. and Forget about uh, the limitations of age. People tell you age is just a number, and it really is. And Solomon's thinking about that. So you forget the numbers. If you want to turn a crisis into a fresh start, develop resilience. Some of the mess can be cleaned up in life, but some of it can only be accepted Verse 10 says, on the screen, whatever exists has already been named. What humanity is has been known. God has named things in our life. He is sovereign. He has named things. He has authority over those things. He's permitted some of those things. Rediscover life's simple pleasures. Verse 2 on the screen, God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor. What about the rest of us? Over and over again, Solomon says, rediscover life's simple pleasures. That's how you turn a crisis into a fresh start. He'll tell you, quiet the inner critic in so many words. Verse 11, the more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? We have this inner critic that beats our, we beat ourselves up over decisions we've made and things that we've done or haven't done. Riding this bike in a direction we've ridden it all of our life. Quiet the inner critic, he says. Create new plans with a purpose. Verse eight. What advantage have the wise over fools? Make sure you're running. You're 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 running towards something, not from something. When you're in the crisis. Finally, he would tell you just improve your lifestyle. A man may have a hundred and children and live many years you want to live as long as god wants you to live and it's important instead of adding years to our life we have to add life to our years we have to add life to our years and solomon's trying to tell you through all these stumbling phrases and these awkward way of expressing things he's trying to create in you a longing that you will reach out for God and say God I want you to be the answer to my crises I walked into this thing not really knowing all that I needed to know but you can walk me through it and you can walk me out of it and Solomon in Ecclesiastes 6 is trying to help you and me to turn a crisis into a fresh start now, I'm going to grab my microphone And who would like to come up and read me the lyrics, read the church the lyrics to Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle? Anybody willing to do that for me this morning? I'm going to get my microphone when I come back. Hopefully somebody's going to be standing up here or on their way. I've got to take her. She's coming right up. I'm going to get a microphone for you, Joanne. Think about this guy as, as she reads. It's a mirror of reflection of what we've seen in our text here today. And I know you don't want this to happen in your life. No, no parent does, but it sometimes does, and it creates a crisis. Joanne, why don't you share it with us? I don't have to sing it, right? You don't have to sing it unless you feel so compelled. <laughs> that's, that's also bonus points. Do you want to hear Joanne sing it? <laughs> okay. My but child,
1: you don't have to oh, do ahead. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking, for I knew it, and as he grew, he'd say, "I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you." And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue, and the man on the moon. When, you, when, you're, when are you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks, Dad, for the ball. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw, I said. Uh, not today. I got a lot to do. He said that's okay And he walked away, but his smile never dimmed It said I'm gonna be like him. Yeah, you know I'm gonna be like him and the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon little boy blue and the man in the moon When when are you coming home dad? I don't know when but we'll get together then you know We'll have a good time then Well, he came from college just the other day, so much like a man, I just had to say, son, I'm proud of you, can you sit for a while? He shook his head and they said with a smile, what I'd really like, dad, is to borrow the car keys. See you later, can I have them, please? And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. When are you coming home, son? I don't know when, but we'll get together then, dad. You know, we'll have a good time then. I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you, if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I could find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle and the kids have a flu, but it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me He'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. When are you coming home, son? I don't know when, but we'll get together then, dad. We're gonna have a good time then.
0: Thank you, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day and thank you for the transparency of a man who pay, played that cats in a cradle storyline. And we pray, Father, that in all that we've shared here today, not only will we have insight into this ancient biblical text, insight into these three poignant phrases Insight into an ancient Near Eastern worldview. All of these insights, but Lord, perhaps the greatest insight comes right now. And I just pray as we just quiet our our hearts for a moment that you would help us evaluate the bike we're on, the rules we're pedaling by, and the race we've entered. And I just have a feeling because of this message today, somebody's going to shift a life rule and they're going to they're modify a priority because there's way too much at stake. And how many times have we said to ourselves, I don't have enough? And that has carried itself out in the way we've lived. And so, Father, we don't need millions and billions and trillions to simply have enough. And thus having enough, when that boy wants to play ball, we'll play ball. When he wants to learn how to drive and that girl wants to learn how to drive, we'll learn how to drive. And when they go off to college, we'll get to celebrate. And when they get married, we can celebrate. And when they have those kids, we can celebrate. And those homecomings can be beautiful. Lord, we don't want to just be relegated to the margins of life and no one is sorry to see we're gone when it comes our time to go. And not that we do these things just so we would have that celebration. We do them because it's the right thing to do. And so no matter what crises we may be in this morning, we believe you've given us at least some lifelines, some anchors to think about this morning, to guide us through the crises of life such that we can make a fresh start here today. And if that cat in the cradle, that silver spoon has anything to do with it, then so be it. And may we live for your honor and your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been a great group. Would you stand with me this morning? You're dismissed. Have a great day.